Good afternoon, everyone. All right, this is going to, I may go over and hit the symbol, or uh, maybe I could go down and get the gong out of Kendra's office. Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your afternoon uh, to come and uh, not just eat, but also hear some helpful, important, relevant information uh, to grow in understanding. And uh, we are very thankful to have Matthew Sorens here with us, who we got a brief introduction to during worship. Matthew is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. Uh, he's uh, the co-author of a couple of excellent books on immigration that are uh, back at the back table. And uh, after our uh, session this afternoon, you'll have an opportunity to interact with Matthew and purchase those books if you would like to. Uh, I, there's a faith church discount, I think, is what I understood, or something like, yeah. Compared to Amazon, yeah. Compared to Amazon yes. <laughs> yeah, and it'll get here faster, uh, believe it or not. Uh, Matthew uh, is a frequent contributor to uh, several TV broadcasts, podcasts, and uh, has a background in uh, legal uh, aid and resources for immigration and immigrants. Uh, so he uh, knows a lot of what he's talking about, as well as being a fellow believer. And we're very glad to have you here with us, Matthew, and looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, we want to uh, thank uh, Brittany and her AV team. Today is just Brittany, but uh, for help in all the sound last night and today. Thank you, Brittany. This is uh, your Sunday afternoon also, so we appreciate your time. Um, and I believe Michelle Rescorla, I was looking for Michelle, helped pull together all the food and the volunteers. So thank you for that. And um, there's still plenty of water around the tables and uh, help yourselves. Um, we, we didn't know when we were supposed to pray. My mom always said, uh, if we started eating before we prayed, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Uh, so um, in, a, in a moment, I'm going to, uh, I'll pray for us. We'll give thanks for food, pray for our time together, and then Matthew's going to share, and we'll have an opportunity for some Q&A afterwards. So uh, be taking mental notes or written notes of things that uh, you might want to ask Matthew. And if you were here last night and didn't get a chance to get your question answered, maybe you can we can get to that today. Uh, this is a great turnout. Again, thank you all so much for being here. Let me pray for us and uh, for our time together, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, again that uh, we are not empty, but you fill us. Uh, you have provided for us. Uh, thank you for the common graces, again, of food and connection and health. Uh, just being able to be here, for the technology that makes this possible, for travel, for all the things, Lord, that sometimes we take for granted. Uh, Lord, help us to see and worship you for your goodness and what you provide. Bless us, Lord, in our uh, listening and speaking and interacting today. We want to be shaped by you. We want to reflect uh, your heart, your word, your wisdom, uh, your love in both justice and compassion so guide us and grow us in good ways, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I like to start with that video, both because it, it's kind of, it puts me at ease to get up here and see people crying. Um, I guess, you know, I feel a little better about, like, if I mess things up, but we're all a little vulnerable at this point. But, um, no, honestly, I, I really appreciate that video. It was not made by World Relief, but one of our partner churches down in Texas. Um, because in some ways it's such, such a good encapsulation of the ministry that we do in, world, in, in the United States, which is, um, for many years, since the 1970s, has been involved in refugee resettlement. So we work with the U.S. State Department. We're one of nine agencies nationally that is authorized by the government. So when a family is arriving, uh, has been selected for resettlement by our government, our job is to be there at the airport, um, ideally with uh, certainly our, you know, our staff person, but also a team from a local church for World Relief that's a central part of our mission, to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And then to, between our staff and the volunteers from the church, help that family adjust to life in a new country, find housing, find um, jobs, find, get kids into school, 
and just work through that process of cultural adjustment into a new place. So we, as I said, we've been doing that for 40 plus years. It actually, our refugee resettlement program started uh, in the late 1970s uh, with a missionary couple uh, who had served in Vietnam for many years and then had come back to the United States. They were in their, uh, they were with the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination and in their denominational headquarters up in New York State. And then when Saigon fell in 1975, like, uh, frankly, very much like is happening right now with the situation in Afghanistan, although then now it's, um, now we're getting emails and text messages and, S and, and WhatsApp messages, but in 1975 it was phone calls and letters and telegraphs with people t to this missionary couple saying, we've had to flee our country, we're, we're in great danger, is there anything you can do to help us? And this couple basically, their names are Grady and Evelyn Mangum, they basically started knocking on every door possible, including at the US government, and saying, what can we do to help some of these families? And they called every church that had ever supported them as a missionary in Vietnam and said, you helped the Vietnamese in Vietnam, now we need you to help them here. So there's families arriving next week, we need you to be there at the airport. Um, and um, Grady Mangum has passed on now to the Lord, but his, Evelyn is still alive, she actually lives in Florida. I had the opportunity to interview her uh, a few years ago for an article I was writing. And if she was half as feisty 45 years ago as she is in her 90s, I know how she got some things done, because she is just kind of a force of nature. Um, in fact, even in her 90s, she goes and is meeting Arab-speaking refugees in Central Florida. So she's had a really amazing uh, life in ministry. But anyway, over time, um, they came to World Relief and said, you know, we're kind of out of churches in our own denomination. We need more churches. And so World Relief is the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. So we work with the Evangelical Free Church and the Christian Missionary Alliance and all sorts of different denominations and non-denominational churches. And so we said at the time, yeah, we could do that. So since 1979, World Relief has been one of those nine agencies that works both with the US government and then with lots of local churches to help welcome refugees into the United States and to serve a number of other immigrants who come in through other processes as well. Uh, so we're really passionate about this, but I also don't have to tell you that this issue of immigration has become rather controversial, and the issue of refugees in, specifically has become rather controversial. So a few years ago, uh, it was really probably about five years ago we did this because the Syrian refugee had just, crisis had just hit the news, and a lot of people were paying attention to it. Lots of people very much eager to be compassionate and help, and lots of people frankly very much concerned that this was a bad thing for the United States, that we should not be bringing in people from Syria. And it had become this very political issue. So we actually wanted to understand, well, how are people in our church partners, think, how are local churches thinking about this? So we asked Lifeway Research, which is a Christian polling firm, to do a survey for us. And we wanted to understand how are Christians, especially evangelical Christians, thinking about the arrival of immigrants to their community. Um, I'll share just a couple of the findings. Um, probably the most disturbing of the findings. There were some good things in that survey too. But the most troubling to us was this. We asked, what's the most important factor influencing your views on the arrival of immigrants to your community? And we gave them a handful of choices. Uh, and the survey designers told us up front, if you ask self-described evangelical Christians any question, and one of the choices is the Bible, they will all check it. It doesn't really matter what the question is. They know that that is the right answer. The Bible, Jesus, you know, those are sort of the Sunday school answers. But apparently they were wrong because only 12% of evangelical Christians said the Bible was the most important influence on how they think about issues of immigration. In fact, the Bible, my local church, 
and the views of national Christian leaders combined got mentioned less often than media. So for most people in most churches, we tend to think about this the way we've heard on Fox News or on MSNBC or on Twitter or on Facebook or in the local newspaper, but too rarely have we thought about it as a biblical issue. And that's, it's also not something we've necessarily talked about in the context of the church. Um, only about one in five evangelical Christians said the, uh, that they have ever heard a message at their church about reaching out to the immigrants in their community. Which you all are clearly, uh, you know, in the minority there. I mean, I, was, I loved the welcome sign here just coming in. And I know that this is a church that's been involved in welcoming immigrants for many years. But that's fairly rare. Uh, actually. It's, it's relatively uncommon for most Christians to have really thought about this issue from anything other than a political or economic or uh, cultural perspective. And those things are all important, and we'll get to some of those. But my goal t- this afternoon is to say, how do we, before we get to those, really ground ourselves in how do we think biblically about this topic of, of refugees specifically and of immigration more generally. And I'll, I'll start with this. <clears throat> if we are followers of Jesus... We are followers of a refugee, or maybe an asylum seeker, and I'll note the distinction in a moment. Um, The picture you can see there, that's a nativity set that we actually got as a a wedding present when my wife and I got married. And a few years back, it just became my daughter Zipporah's favorite toy for the whole month of December. Um, It's pretty sturdy, so we let her play with it, and we've read her the storybook Bible enough that she knows the Christmas story really well. And, you know, it's got cute little animals, and Mary and Joseph, and a baby Jesus, and wise men and shepherds. But she turned to me one day and said, Dad, our nativity scene is missing a character. We don't have the angry king. And I thought about that. I've actually never seen a nativity set with a King Herod figurine. (laughs) It's maybe not our favorite part of that story. It's a little more pleasant to end the Christmas pageant with the wise men bowing down and worshiping Jesus, giving him their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then we can all go home and exchange some presents, because even Jesus got presents, and you know, we all feel good about ourselves. But that's not where the Gospel of Matthew ends that story. Because in the Matthew chapter 2, as soon as the wise men, the Magi, are on their way back to their countries, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod, this paranoid, tyrannical Middle Eastern king, is on his way to Bethlehem to kill all the little boys. And Joseph is told to get up in the middle of the night. There's no time to make a plan. You just need to get up immediately and escape with Mary and Joseph, or Mary and Jesus, across the border into Egypt, where you'll be safe. And we don't know very much about the journey from the text in Matthew 2. We don't know how they were treated when they got to Egypt. Uh, It doesn't really tell us in Matthew chapter 2. That's why I noted maybe Jesus was a refugee, maybe Jesus was an asylum seeker. Of course, the legal distinctions wouldn't have made any sense at that time, but we do have legal distinctions now. Under U.S. law, a refugee is someone uh, who has fled their country because of a credible fear of persecution that has to specifically be on account of one's race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Uh, And if you think about that, that, you have to have fled your country. So if you have fled your home, but you're still within the boundaries of your country, you're not technically a refugee. Uh, There's about 45 million people in our world today who are internally displaced within the boundaries of their nation. But just by that definition, you have about 26 and a half million people who are refugees, which is higher than at any point since anyone has been tracking statistics on this. Um, It's gone up, it's almost doubled just in the last uh, decade or two. 
Uh, now I mentioned, well, maybe Jesus was an asylum seeker. Again, of course, they didn't have these legal frameworks at the time. But the distinction under US law, an asylum seeker is someone who was not brought to the United States because they've been determined to be a refugee. They made their own way here, whether on a temporary tourist visa or they made their way to the border. And then they profess to meet the definition of a refugee. That is to say, they say they've got a credible fear of persecution in their country of origin because of one of the reasons under the law. Until such time as our government has the opportunity to review their case on an individual basis and determine if they, the, our government agrees that it is a credible fear or not, they're considered an asylum seeker. And if they are found to have met that burden of proof, they're granted asylum, they're allowed to stay under our laws. If they do not, they're usually removed, deported. One other category, and I added this last week, is a special immigrant visa. Um, if this category didn't, wasn't created last week, it was created more than a decade ago. Uh, but a special immigrant visa is a special visa created by the United States uh, Congress specifically for individuals from Afghanistan or Iraq who are at risk in those countries because of their service to the US military or some other part of the US government. Um, so this is not a new phenomenon uh, with both the Iraq conflict and the Afghanistan conflict. This has been going on for a while. In fact, World Relief has welcomed about 6,300 individuals who've already been approved for special immigrant visas into the United States in the last five years. Um, where this has become a challenge right now is one dynamic that's a little unique about the special immigrant visa is you don't have to leave the country to apply for it. So if you want to sort of take your chances and stay in Afghanistan, you can do so, especially because it's frankly hard to get out even before last week. There's not a great options of where to go. So while it's pending, most people are within the country. And where that's become very difficult is, of course, in the last few weeks, it's, people are suddenly very urgently trying to get out because it's no longer the Afghan government supported by the United States who's in charge of most of the country, it's the Taliban, uh, the, the uh, insurgent force that many of these individuals helped the United States militarily uh, against as opponents. So they're now afraid of retribution. And the best estimates is as of a, a month or so ago, when Kabul fell, there was about 18,000 pending cases for special immigrant visas in Afghanistan. And that doesn't include you're allowed to bring your, your spouse and your minor children. So it could be three to four times that, potentially. Some of those individuals have gotten out in the evacuations of the last couple weeks. Many others of them have not. So that's kind of an aside, but just because we were hearing that in the news, I thought I should add that in. Obviously, Jesus was not on a special immigrant visa, but he was um, arguably a refugee. He fled his persecution to go to Egypt. And I think that that's really powerful as we think about how we would respond to refugees, is to keep in mind that our Lord and Savior in his humanity had that experience as himself, as a small child. I mean, and it was a, probably a very formative part of his childhood that he spent part of his childhood growing up in Egypt. Um, this may be something we don't think that much about, but that was part of our Lord's experience as a human being. And in that sense, those roughly 26 and a half million people globally who are refugees have someone in Jesus who can very personally identify with that hardship. Another biblical theme that I think ought to be foundational as we think about these issues is that the Bible tells us that every human person is made in the image and likeness of God. We find that in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And Christians have historically understood this to mean that human beings have an inherent dignity uh, that is unique from any other creation because we are made in the image of God. And that, of course, would give us a, a motivation to do anything we possibly could to protect human life, 
including the lives of individuals fleeing from the threat of, of persecution or death. But then there's another dynamic related to this idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, that I think it relates to issues of immigration. And that is that human beings are made in the image of a creator, which means we have potential to create and to contribute. And that's true for all human beings, including immigrants. But sometimes when we talk about issues of immigration, we tend to forget that. Because we very quickly focus in on, well, what is this going to cost us? What are those people going to consume? Uh, Mike Gerson, who was a speechwriter for President Bush and is a Christian, he said, we, we make a mistake whenever we look at any category of people and we see them only as mouths. And we forget that they are also hands and feet and brains with the potential to create and to contribute. So it's fair to ask, well, how much is, how much is this immigration going to cost us as a country? How many jobs are those refugees going to take? But it is only fair to ask that if we're concurrently asking the question, how much are they going to contribute? How many jobs are they going to create? And it turns out the answer might be a lot. 44% uh, of Fortune 500 companies were founded by an immigrant or their child. All sorts of large companies that uh, employ many, many, many native-born American citizens wouldn't be American companies, probably wouldn't be companies at all, if it wasn't for our country's heritage of immigration. Or even if you look just on a fiscal level, um, it's true that when refugees arrive, they receive some help from the US government. And that's actually a distinction from a lot of other categories of immigrants who don't get that help. Uh, they're, you know, they usually they get enough to cover their housing for two to three months in most cases, and some support from a settlement agency like World Relief. And then they qualify for some public benefits as well, like food stamps that um, most other immigrants actually would not qualify for. So there are some costs to taxpayers. You can add up all those costs. And it's true that if you looked at the average refugee one year after arrival, they would almost always have received more from the US taxpayer than they had contributed. I said this last night, but the same is true for my 11-month-old son. Like, he is just a total drain on the economy. He <laughs> doesn't pay any taxes. But that's kind of silly, right? Like, we don't look at people at one snapshot in time. We look at them over a horizon of time. And when we do so, uh, economists who've studied this, including a study out of the University of Notre Dame here in Indiana, uh, found that it's usually somewhere around year eight or nine that the average refugee goes from receiving more than they're paying in to paying in more than they're receiving out. And that continues to grow such that by 20 years after arrival, the average refugee adult has contributed approximately $21,000 more in taxes at all levels than the combined cost of governmental expenditures on their behalf, both in terms of initial resettlement and any ongoing benefits that they've received. Or others would say, okay, well that's refugees, this particular subset of immigrants who come because they fled persecution, but what about other immigrants? What especially about immigrants who are not here legally? And that's probably the most controversial category of immigrant. Uh, a lot of people presume that those people are not paying taxes. But the reality is many of them are paying taxes. Um, first of all, you pay sales tax regardless of your legal status. When you go through the checkout line at Walmart, nobody says you don't get a special card that says, I'm here legally, don't charge me sales tax. <laughs> you pay property taxes whether you own your home or you're paying rent on an apartment and the landlord just has to pay property taxes. And then even income taxes. It, it's true that if you look at unauthorized immigrants working unlawfully in the country, about half of them are being paid in cash under the table, and then usually not having you know, payroll taxes deducted. But the other half are being paid with the, on the payroll, and taxes are taken out of their paycheck. They go to the Social Security Administration and federal government, sometimes state governments. Um, 
we know that from the Social Security Administration. Those estimates are from the Social Security Administration, which makes those estimates based off the money that they're receiving from Social Security numbers that don't match the name on the card. And if you think about it, if you've looked at your Social Security card recently, it looks like it was made with blue construction paper and a typewriter. <laughs> we could probably come up with a more secure document in 2021 if we wanted to make sure that no one was working without authorization. Uh, but uh, we've not done so at a national level. And the Social Security Administration doesn't receive that money and then send it back. They send it to my parents and other people who've paid into the Social Security system. And the net effect is approximately $12 billion per year from numbers that don't match the names on the cards. And that's just Social Security, not looking at income taxes or other benefits. Of course, there are other economic contributions as well and filling in some key roles in the US labor market. Consumption as well. I mean, we, people aren't just taking jobs. They're also adding to the total number of jobs through their consumption by paying rent and by buying some cell phones and buying groceries and buying cars. All those things add into an economy. And that's part of why uh, a couple, some economists were surveyed, a bunch of economists were surveyed by the Wall Street Journal a while back and asked, well, what do you think is the net economic impact on the United States of illegal immigration in particular? And 96% said, well, the net economic impact of illegal immigration is positive. Again, that doesn't mean that all immigrants are contributing on a positive level or that they're all contributing equally, but it's a pretty strong consensus among the people who study this that the net economic impact is positive. And that's not to excuse the violation of law or to say that, um, that, you know, that we should just ignore that dynamic, but it is a reminder that all these people, whether they're here lawfully or not, whether they're refugees or some other kind of immigrant, they are people made in the image of God with the potential to create and contribute. And we make a mistake if we brush over that. Another core biblical theme, in, especially in the, the Old Testament, is that we see that God has this particular concern for those who are vulnerable. And in the Old Testament especially, we see three groups of people that come up in the same passages over and over and over again. The orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Or depending upon which translation of the Bible you're reading in English, the stro stranger, the sojourner, the immigrant, uh, the alien. The Hebrew word there is the word ger. It appears 92 times just in the Old Testament. So this is not just like one verse that somehow we missed in, I don't know, one of the minor prophets that we don't read very often. This is actually a pretty frequent theme in the, the narrative of the Old Testament, that God tells the people of Israel, I love these individuals who are vulnerable, and you shall love them as well. That is a pretty close paraphrase of Deuteronomy 10, 18. Uh, not only does God say on a sort of generic level, you shall love these people, but he establishes laws for the people of Israel to ensure that the needs of these vulnerable categories of people could be met. He tells the people of Israel, when you go through your crops, your olives, your wheat, your grapes, you can only go through them one time, and then you must leave what remains for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Which was actually kind of an ingenious system. It wasn't a handout system. People still had to go, like, like Ruth. I, I was told not to get ahead of the story in, in the book of Ruth, but... <laughs> If you do, she ends up gleaning in a field, which is a little weird if you don't know the rest of the Old Testament, right? Like, well, that's kind of a strange thing to do. But if you think about it, she qualifies. She's both a widow and a foreigner. She's specifically the category of people who were expected to be able to come and uh, have their most basic need for sustenance met. Another uh, foundational biblical text that I think informs how we ought to think about this issue is the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
And this, uh, we find this in its first instance in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. God tells the people of Israel, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then just a few verses later in verses uh, 33 and 34, it says, when foreigners reside with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. The foreigners residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So even if we were just working off of Leviticus 19, sorry, sorry, we could conclude that that command to love our neighbors has very broad ramifications. It is not the narrow definition of a neighbor that we might uh, instinctually presume in English of, well, that's someone who lives three doors down from me on either side. Uh, it could be, you know, very broad, but that's underscored even more by Jesus when Jesus is asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus affirms that it is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the, the legal scholar who's asking this of him in Luke chapter 10, it tells us in the text that he wanted to justify himself. So he, he has a follow-up question. He's a good lawyer. Uh, he wants to know, well, who is my neighbor? And he would like a very precise legal definition so that he can demonstrate that he has satisfied this requirement. But Jesus doesn't give a precise legal definition. He tells a story that we think of as the Good Samaritan, which is probably a story we're hopefully all familiar with. There's this presumably Jewish person going down the road to Jericho who is beaten and robbed and left to die in need. And a priest and a Levite, the religious leaders of that time, they come by, they see him in need, but they walk by on the other side. And then a Samaritan, someone who was of a different ethnicity, a different religion, not just different, but basically despised. Like we, we hear the term Good Samaritan, and that sounds to us like a nice name for a hospital or something. Uh, but for a Jewish person, that was an oxymoron. The Samaritans were not good. They were bad. They were the wrong people who we don't even associate with. And so it was actually rather shocking when Jesus makes the Samaritan not even just the, the beneficiary of help in this story, but the hero of the story, the model of neighborly love who shows love for someone who is in need, who he doesn't know, who is different from him. And reading that story, it's pretty obvious, I think, that when we want to apply this to our question of, well, how should we treat immigrants, clearly immigrants fit into that category of our neighbor. It's very hard to argue that we should narrowly define who our neighbor is to include only those who live on our block or are of the same skin color or language of origin or, or religion. And then another dynamic of that story is, um, if you talk to scholars who have studied this, they'll tell you that that road to Jericho actually had a reputation for being a rather dangerous road. It was the sort of road that you didn't want to be stopping and lingering on to help someone out at night. And so it's notable that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's clearly not adding a caveat, as long as it's safe. Because his model of what it looks like to love our neighbor put himself at some risk to stop and help someone who is in need. I hear that. I think about some of the churches that World Relief has worked with over the years in different parts of the world, especially in the Middle East, who have responded to incredible numbers of people displaced from war or conflict who've come across the border. And they do so not because they are fully confident that those individuals have been thoroughly vetted, uh, but because they were never under the impression that following Jesus was necessarily going to be safe. That's challenging for me as an American because safety is a very high priority for most Americans. You know, when we send emails, we write things like, take care, be safe. But what the scriptures tell us, nothing, I'm not to say that we, that we shouldn't you know, value safety, but what the scriptures tell us consistently is, take courage, be not afraid. And not because there's nothing scary out there in the world, but because of who our God is. Amen. 
Then the irony, when you, when you think about it, is we have these very brave brothers and sisters in Christ who are risking their lives in some cases to show sacrificial love to strangers who they don't know. In the United States, it actually isn't unsafe to welcome refugees uh, because the context is incredibly different than what it is in the Middle East or even than in Europe. Um, when you talk about a refugee who's come to the United States, these are individuals who've been invited by our government. Uh, there's 26 and a half million refugees in the world right now. In a normal year, we might take 75,000 of them. This year, we're taking less than 10,000 of them. So we're talking about somewhere between one-tenth and maybe one-half of one percent, even at a good time, of the world's refugees who get resettled to the United States. Every single one of them who gets even considered for that option of resettlement goes through an incredibly thorough vetting process. It is actually the most thorough vetting process, according to the Heritage Foundation and others who've analyzed this, of any uh, category of visitor or immigrant who comes into the United States. And it's been remarkably successful. Uh, since 1980, when the Refugee Act was signed into law that kind of established our refugee system, there have been about three million refugees resettled to the United States, and not a single one of them has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. Now, that's not to say they were all perfect people, or that we can guarantee that someone wouldn't try to come in through the refugee program to do harm. But it does suggest that we are doing, an, an, our government is doing a really excellent job of keeping out the wrong people and letting in people who are legitimately refugees, who are often the victims of that kind of, of terrorism and persecution overseas. And my fear is that sometimes as, as Christians, we've been so focused on the question of is this safe? Or is the government doing our jo its job right? and frankly, not looking very hard for the answers, that we have forgotten to ask the question, who is my neighbor? And to be the people who are there at the airport to welcome people. Now, sometimes that, that, of course, is specific to refugees who come in through this uniquely thorough vetting process that the government has set up. Someone might reasonably say, OK, but what about some of those other immigrants who didn't go through that thorough vetting process? What about someone who snuck across the border and they didn't interact with any US government official at any point? They never went through a background check. Isn't that a security problem? And I would agree. Uh, we've been really clear at World Relief for a long time that we ought to have secure borders. That's not the same as a closed border, but we ought, our government ought to know who's coming in and going out and do everything reasonably possible to keep out anyone who would be seeking to do harm. What's not necessarily fair to conclude, though, is that those individuals who have crossed the border unlawfully or maybe overstayed a temporary visa are somehow disproportionately a threat to public safety. And that's because we have good data on that. Most of those individuals who've been here for at least 10 years, they've had adequate time to commit crime, if that was their intention, and they haven't done so in the vast majority of cases. Now, a few have, of course, but actually they've done so, if you look at them in comparison to native-born US citizens, at lower rates than native-born US citizens. And it's difficult to measure this precisely at a national level, but some of the best data actually comes out of Texas. So it may be weird to give you data from Texas in Indiana. Uh, but Texas happens to be the state that asks this of everyone who's convicted of a crime. So, and it also is a state with a lot of immigrants. So it's not that they have a very small sample. It's actually got more immigrants, uh, both lawfully and unlawfully present, than any other state besides California. Um, and you, I know you probably can't read those numbers, but the, the blue line is US-born citizens. The red is lawfully present immigrants, which would include refugees. And the green line is undocumented immigrants, those with no legal status. And you can see, basically across the board, except for green card holders who apparently have more traffic violations. Um, but that's probably the category of our least concern amongst violent crime and property crime. Um, across the board, immigrants actually are convicted of crimes at significantly lower rates than native-born US citizens. 
And I tell you that not so that you would be afraid of your US citizen neighbors. <laughs> because we should love them even if there is a public safety threat. But to say that it's not particularly rational to be uniquely afraid of our immigrant neighbors. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that that's because immigrants are more virtuous than US citizens. I think it probably has to do with the consequences that are at play. Because if you're a, an immigrant, even one who's here lawfully with your green card, and let's say here in Indiana you steal a candy bar. Well, if I do that as a US citizen, it's, kind of, it's a misdemeanor offense, kind of a slap on the wrist. I'm unlikely to spend much time in jail for that on a first offense. But for an immigrant with their green card, lawfully present in the country, stealing that one candy bar, in addition to being a misdemeanor criminal offense, for immigration legal purposes, is a crime involving moral turpitude, which is a complicated term that basically means you are at risk of deportation. So I've got a pretty strong incentive not to steal the candy bar. And frankly, if I'm not here legally, I don't want to interact with the police at all. Because even if I wasn't guilty of stealing the candy bar, if they thought I was, and I'm, once I'm being fingerprinted and in the police station, depending upon the particular jurisdiction, it's possible that that could end up in me being deported as well. So in a lot of immigrant communities, immigrants tend to be very wary of interacting with the police at all. Which again, when that deters crime is a good thing. When it deters people who are victims of crime from coming forward or who are witnesses to crime from coming forward, it's actually not a good thing in terms of public safety. Now that, in, that introduces a whole other complicated issue for Christians, which is, okay, well refugees, they all come here lawfully, they're thoroughly vetted, they've fled persecution, but how do we think as Christians about those immigrants who are not here legally? It's worth noting that that's not most immigrants. It's uh, about 11 million people, probably about 25% of the immigrants in the country right now. But that's enough that we can't just ignore that issue. And so I think for a lot of Christians, on the one hand, we would say, well, we want to love and welcome and share the gospel with people, regardless of their country of origin or their legal status. But we also want to follow the law. And there's reasons for that biblically. Romans 13 is probably the most well-known passage where the Apostle Paul says the, that the governing authorities have been established by God, that we are to be subject to them. So for a lot of Christians, that's the real question. Should we love and welcome people, or should we follow the law? And I know the answer. And the answer is yes. <laughs> and the good news is we often have presumed a dilemma there that for most of us isn't actually there. Because there's nothing in the law. If you're going to take Romans 13 seriously, which I think we need to, you need to go to the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is a, you know, I have my copy in my office. It's bigger than the Bible and far less interesting. <laughs> it's incredibly complicated, our immigration laws. But it doesn't actually have that much to say to a US citizen or to a church or ministry. Uh, there's nothing in the law that says if you suspect that your neighbor's here unlawfully, you need to report that. Or that you cannot have them over for a meal and be their friend. No, or that as a church, you can't run an English class or a food pantry or any other sort of ministry. Or that you can't teach, share the gospel with someone or teach them Sunday school or let them teach Sunday school to you. So long as you're not compensating them, that's where you get into a legal issue is in terms of employment. But in terms of any of the normal ministry that a church would do or that just an individual would do, it's not against the law. And I think that's sort of a relief to a lot of people who felt this sort of like tension of, gosh, there's all these commands about loving and welcoming and then there's these laws, but often we haven't done the homework of actually understanding what the laws say. Now I should say this is harder for our sisters and brothers in Christ who are here unlawfully. And there's a lot of those people in the state of Indiana and the nation as a whole. The church in the United States, especially among evangelical Christianity, is growing fastest. Actually, frankly, it's the only net growth among people who are not white 
and that is largely fueled by immigrants and their children. And that is, you know, it's good that we have some element of church growth, but with that comes some complicated situations. You have people who were Christians when they came here. You have others who were not Christians when they came here who met Jesus and who are here unlawfully. I always think of this guy in my neighborhood where I lived for a number of years. He's from Mexico. He's actually a Baptist now, but he was not a believer when he came to the U.S. Uh, he came uh, with his, at a point of economic desperation, felt like he couldn't provide for his family, so he and his wife, and at the time I think one or two children, came illegally across the border. And at some point in the United States, he met someone who told him about Jesus, shared the gospel with him, and it radically transformed his life. And he starts reading his Bible. In fact, he's gone to Bible school now. He's a lay leader in his church. And he has read Romans chapter 13. And he is frankly anguished by Romans chapter 13 because he wants to be right with the law. But that's not quite as simple as then, okay, I just am packing up and going back to Mexico. Uh, of course, the first thing he does when he wants to get right with the law is he's asked the lawyers. He's asked our legal counselors at World Relief. He asked me, is there any way I can make this right? What could I pay? How could I possibly fix this? And we, I had to ask him a bunch of personal questions, and that basically goes to how our legal system works. Do you have any close relatives who are US citizens? Well, just my kids who were born here. Well. They're not 21 yet, and even if they are 21, that would require you to wait in Mexico for 10 years. So that's not a great option. Any other relatives who are US citizens? No. OK. Do you have an employer who wants to sponsor you? Well, my employer likes me a lot. Uh, are you classified as highly skilled? Well, no. He doesn't have a master's degree. And under our laws, to get an employer-sponsored immigrant visa, uh, in almost all cases, you have to be classified as highly skilled, which usually means an advanced degree. Well, were you fleeing persecution in Mexico? I mean, not really. I was fleeing poverty, but it wasn't like directed at me because of my ethnicity, my religion, one of those reasons. Okay, probably not an option. Um, and the last option, which isn't an option once you're here, would have been the diversity visa lottery, which is an online lottery, the odds of winning of which are usually about one in 400, and you can't enter if you're from Mexico. So even if he was extraordinarily lucky, uh, he does not qualify to even enter that lottery. So in his case, there's no possibility to change his legal status. Not in one year, not in five years, not in 10 years. And he could go back to Mexico. There's no question that he could do that. He cannot come back the legal way, which is what a lot of well-meaning Christians would tell him to do. But without, no immigration attorneys would tell him to do that because they understand that that is not how our immigration legal system currently works. And so this presents a real dilemma for him because on the one hand, he so wants to be right with the law. On the other, there's a lot of factors that make this complicated. He's married. And his wife might not feel the same level of conviction on this that he does. And he wants to keep his marriage together. He's had several more children born in the United States who are citizens. And frankly, if he were to go to Mexico, they would rather stay on with their cousins and finish high school and go on to college in the only language that they've ever been educated in rather than going to their parents' <laughs> country of origin. And then even biblically, he's th thinking about a passage like in 1 Timothy where the Apostle Paul says that everyone must provide for his family, and especially for his, or for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, that if you fail to do so, it is worse than an unbeliever. Well, that's why he came in the first place. Even before he was a believer, he had this sense that as a father, he needed to provide for his family, and he just felt like he couldn't do it without going elsewhere. And he's worked incredibly hard here and has provided well for his family. And honestly, I don't know what to tell him. Uh, every case is a little bit different. They're not all the same. There are literally people for whom going back to their country of origin might mean persecution and death. There's others for whom it wouldn't be that big of a deal. So I don't want to pretend that every case is the same. But what I am pretty sure of is I would love to be able to tell my friend, here's what you need to do to make this right. 
Here's the form you need to fill out. Here's the fine that you need to pay. He's not asking for an amnesty that says it was forgiven and forgotten. He'd be willing to pay just about anything. And that's actually what we have advocated for at World Relief and our partners with the National Association of Evangelicals and others for many years have said, we think if we're going to honor the law that an amnesty that just ignores the law and pretends that there wasn't a violation of law is not really honoring the law. At the same time, we don't think that deporting 11 million people and splitting them up from their US-born children and figuring out how to pay to, for foster care for their children or whatever you're going to do there, we don't think that's a reasonable option either. But there ought to be some way where people could come forward pay a fine as restitution for their violation of law, and then have the chance to earn permanent legal status if they're willing to, you know, to show that they're working, they're paying taxes, they're not committing criminal offenses. Um, if you pair that with improvements to border security, so making it harder to immigrate illegally, and improvements to our visa system to make it easier to immigrate legally, not without limit, but frankly, a lot of the people who are here now would have been thrilled to come lawfully if there was a visa available to them. And there was a job available to them. But if the number of visas was in some ways tied to the number of jobs that we needed to fill in this country. That's the sort of position that we've advocated for at World Relief for a long time. I did want to mention, because it's been in the news a little bit as well, one particular category of, of immigrant in that category of undocumented immigrant is those who are called dreamers. Uh, and these are individuals who were brought here unlawfully, but before they were adults. So they were under the age of 18, or depending on how you define it, maybe under the age of 16. Obviously, I think most people recognize that that's an even more complicated case uh, because you don't want to penalize someone who was brought here as a three-year-old for a decision that they didn't have any role in making. And we've, as taxpayers, we've, we've basically paid to educate these kids, and then at a certain point, they've realized, oh, but I actually can't go on to college, or at least I've had to pay fully privately. They don't qualify for financial aid. And then I can't get a job that requires me to actually have work authorization. So um, there's been legislative efforts to fix that. None of them have passed at this point. In the 2012, there was an executive action taken by the Obama administration to let those people have work authorization and a temporary deferral from deportation. That was challenged, that was um, been challenged in the court and it's gone back and forth a little bit. The current status of that program called DACA, which you've probably heard about in the news, is last month a judge in Texas ruled that DACA is illegal. Now he stayed his decision for those who currently have DACA pending further court review. So. It'll be up to the next, the, probably ultimately up to the Supreme Court to decide if those people are allowed to stay or if they are, are take, have their legal protections taken away and their work authorization. Uh, the program is currently closed for anyone who has not already applied. And I, I say that because it's, this is an issue that affects your community. There are a number of individuals who are currently able to work and you know, we talk about them as kids sometimes, but they came as kids before 2007. So many of them at this point are in their 30s. Some of them are parents themselves. Uh, but their ability to work lawfully is on the line with these sort of decisions. All that goes back to, if we think about Romans 13 as Americans, for those of us who are Americans, we also have the privilege, part of being subject to governing authorities in a democratic form of government, is we are invited to speak into those policies. And you don't have to agree with me and what that means, but we all have that right to let our elected officials know, this is how I think it should work. And I've found that actually our, your elected officials really want to understand what you think because they're trying to vote in such a way that when it times for you, comes time for you to vote for or against them, you're going to have a happy opinion of them and vote for them to be reelected. So they're trying to figure out what do people actually think, and only those who actually communicate with their congressional offices or with the White House have that impact. A couple other biblical themes, and then we'll switch to Q&A here. Um, one is I want to kind of go back to that definition of a refugee. 
if you think about it, it's someone who's fled persecution for a number of reasons, one of which is religion. And it turns out that the religion that gets more people into serious trouble in our world today than any other is actually Christianity. So when we talk about refugees, a significant share of them are people who are, were persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. In fact, if you look at refugees who resettled to the United States in the last decade, uh, the plurality have been Christians. That is to say, more than the number who are Muslims or than Hindus or Buddhists or any other single religious tradition. Uh, the number one country of origin for refugees resettled to the United States. Anyone want to take a guess at what that is for the last decade? Burma. Burma is correct. I heard Nigeria and China and several others, but it is actually Burma. Um, if you know anything about Burma, and actually you've got a lot of neighbors right here who are from Burma, um, it is not a primarily Christian country. The, it's a mostly Buddhist country. The government is a very um, authoritarian military regime. But there is a minority of individuals in, in Burma who are Christians, as well as a minority who are Muslim. Um, and those religious minorities have been amongst the most persecuted people in Burma for many years. In fact, 70% of the refugees who've come to the United States from Burma have been Christians. A lot of Baptists and Anglicans, some Catholic. Uh, and they are people who, they were persecuted in significant part because of their faith in Jesus. Now, I've had some of those uh, folks as my neighbors. I lived in an apartment complex for many years, and the apartment directly underneath mine uh, was a Karen Burmese family. They actually hosted a Burmese Baptist church out of their apartment. And I would know that church was happening because there would be several dozen sets of shoes um, outside. You don't bring your shoes inside to a house if, if you're Burmese. Uh, they also have really loud worship music, which... <laughs> I might have complained if it was other music, but I felt bad. I should probably not complain about the worship music. <laughs> but I've had some of those neighbors at my door to make sure that I know who Jesus is. And frankly, I have had a lot to learn about following Jesus from people who have risked everything because of their faith in Christ. When we welcome them, there's a sense in which we're actually welcoming Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And the disciples say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison or a stranger? And the disciples say, and Jesus says to the disciples, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did unto me. And whatever you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do unto me. I think it's also worth noting, as some of you may be aware, the number of refugees resettled to the United States has gone down really dramatically in the last five years, starting in 2017. Um, that has affected re refugees of all religious backgrounds, including those who are Christians. So this graph is from a report that we did at World Relief with our, our partners at Open Doors USA that was specifically looking at the number of Christian refugees from the 50 countries on the Open Doors World Watch List of countries where we know that Christians face severe persecution. So Burma is high on that list, Afghanistan is high on that list, um, Iraq, Syria, uh, North Korea, a number of countries. You can see the number of Christian refugees from those countries fell from 18,000 in 2015 uh, down to last year, it was down by about 90% over the course of five years. And it has continued to fall into 2021 at this point. Um, now, if it was just Christian refugees, if it was just the Burmese Baptists that we were talking about, I'm not sure that refugee resettlement would be so controversial among Christians. But the reality is, I think if you ask most Americans what they think of when they think of a refugee, they tend to think about Muslims, maybe from Syria or now from Afghanistan. And there are many Christians who see that as actually a threat. Well, we don't want those people coming into our country. But our view at World Relief is actually, this is an amazing opportunity. You have people from 
uh, various countries with very limited religious freedom. Countries where if you, first of all, you'd be very unlikely to ever encounter a Christian in your life. And if you did, it would put, be putting yourself at risk of death in most cases to make the decision to become a follower of Christ. And so while I'm all for trying to figure out how to send missionaries to those parts of the world, we have missed something really profound if we don't notice that God, in his sovereignty, has sent people from all those nations to Indianapolis, Indiana, into a context where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we are free to share our faith, and people are free to receive it or to reject it. And to be really clear, uh, we don't do proselytism at World Relief. We don't serve people better if you're a Christian. We don't say, well, we'll, we'll you know, pay for an extra month of rent if you pray this prayer. Uh, we don't believe in you know, coercing people or pressuring people into conversion. But we do believe in evangelism rightly understood, which is an open invitation, not a, not a pressure conversion attempt, but an open invitation to a relationship with Christ. And frankly, that often happens in response to a question. Because when it is a team from a local church that meets a family at the airport and genuinely loves them as their neighbors, which we're called to do whether they would ever share our faith or not, but when we do that part well, it's rare that sooner or later they don't ask the question of why. And we get to, as 1 Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you, and to do so with gentleness and respect. And we have seen many refugees and other immigrants of different religious backgrounds make the choice, again, of their own volition in the United States to become followers of Christ. And very often, because of the, the testimony and the friendship and the love that they've experienced from, from followers of Jesus. But we can't presume that's automatic. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary finds that among people of non-Christian religious traditions in North America, 60% say they do not personally know a Christian. And we might say, so not that they've never been to church, they've never read the Bible, they don't know a Christian. And you might say, wow, those people need to get out more. You know, like, how many churches did you drive by today to get to this one? Like, there's a lot of Christians in Indianapolis, but maybe we need to put the mirror up to ourselves and say, and this is something this church has done so much better than, frankly, most congregations in the U.S., but are we going into their neighborhood and getting to know them and loving them as our neighbors, which, again, is our call regardless of whether they would share our faith or not. And when we do so, we might see people make that decision to follow Jesus. J.D. Payne, who's a missiologist, says that something is missionally malignant whenever we're willing to make great sacrifices to travel the world to reach a people group, but are not willing to walk across the street. <laughs> um, so real quickly, I want to just wrap up with a few practical ideas of, well, you know, it's great that we know what the Bible says on this, but it says in the book of James that basically knowing what the Bible says and not doing it is not particularly useful. So how do we apply this? We've used this acronym of PLEASE. So the first point there is prayer. And that's not just because LEASE wasn't a great acronym. Um, we really believe in prayer. Frankly, especially with what's happening in Afghanistan now, I don't know what else to do besides pray. Um, but to be asking God for wisdom for leaders in government, both in our country and in other countries, uh, asking God to be near to those who are in hardships, who are needing to escape, whether Afghanistan or, frankly, many other contexts in our world, asking God for the response of the church in this country, that we would reflect his love. The next point there is listening. And I would say there's at least two sources we should be listening to. Uh, the first is to the Bible. That stat that I started with, that 12% of evangelicals think about this primarily as a biblical issue, that's a scandal for people who would say the Bible is our authority for every issue. Um, so one resource we have, and um, I have a bunch of these at the back table there, is a simple bookmark. It is simply 40 Bible verses that relate in one way or another to the topic of immigration. It doesn't tell you 
uh, it doesn't interpret those passages for you. It's just up to you to let you and the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, but you can grab one of these on your way out. It's also online on the Bible.com version app um, if you want to do it digitally on your phone. Secondly, we should be listening to the stories of immigrants themselves. Some of you who were here last night, we got to hear a couple testimonies from, uh, from someone who has DACA uh, and also someone who was resettled as a refugee from Burma. And for me, hearing those stories in relationship with my neighbors has been very transformative for how I think about these issues. The E in that acronym is Empowering Churches Abroad. Even at a time when a lot of refugees are allowed to come in, 85% of, of refugees in the world are not coming to the United States. In fact, they're living in a country neighboring their own country, often very poor countries with very limited resources. And yet countries in every case, sometimes very openly, sometimes more discreetly, where there are churches, where there are Christians seeking to love those neighbors. And um, one of the things we do at World Relief, and there's other good organizations doing this, is coming alongside churches in other parts of the world, in Africa, in Asia, in, in Latin America, and the Caribbean, to care for the, to help churches care for their neighbor, neighbors, and frankly, to address some of the root causes that lead to forced migration before they occur, the issues like conflict and poverty and environmental degradation. The A in that acronym is advocacy. The, the simplest definition of advocacy is found in Proverbs 31, verse 8. It's to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And I always want to be careful how we use that passage, because I, I literally just told you to listen to immigrants. So immigrants are not people who cannot speak for themselves. But there is a sense, in terms of those public policy dynamics, where your senators, your members of Congress, the president, they're very concerned with the views of US citizens who can vote. They're usually less concerned with the views of non-citizens who cannot vote. So those of us who happen to be citizens of this country, most of us probably by having been born here, um, I think that's an issue of stewardship, to use that not just to look out for our interests and the interests of our immediate families, but also for those who are vulnerable. And there's plenty of people in that category, but certainly among them would be refugees and other immigrants. Um, so one way you can do that, I mean, even locally, I, I, I've seen a few of these Nora Strong t-shirts on. There's efforts locally to say, how do we help ensure that there is decent, affordable housing for some of our refugee neighbors? And you can ask probably one of the people with that shirt on if you want to know more about what's going on there. At, this, you know, at the federal level, it might be reaching out to your senators and saying, we'd like you to, to pass permanent legislation that would help dreamers, those individuals who... Um, who were brought here as children. If you want to do that, there's a sign-on letter actually at the back. If you fill out the little response card and check the box, I want to sign that letter, we'll send that in for you. You also can, um, if you like the PowerPoint slides, I can send you those too, but you have to write your email really legibly. Um, it might be calling the White House. We have tools at the World Relief website and saying, you know, President Biden, you need to do more to make sure that those who risk their lives for the U.S. military are able to get out which frankly, it looks very unlikely at this point that they're all going to get out. Um, so that's advocacy. The S is serving locally. Uh, there are all sorts of opportunities right in this church and probably in the, the broader community to meet very tangible needs in immigrant communities. Things like learning English, which this church has. Actually, I wrote about this church in one of my books. It's such an amazing um, program that you all have with English language instructions. Um, and there's other ministries in the community as well that are serving very practical, tangible needs in immigrant communities. Alongside all those, I think you'll find that often the biggest need is friendship. People have landed in a new place and they may have family here, but they may not. And having someone who will you know, bear with them through some cultural misunderstandings and some language barriers and just help them understand what life is like in this new country is often what they say they need the most. And, and that leads into evangelism. Again, 
you share the gospel with refugees, you may find that they share the gospel right back at you because many refugees and, and actually most immigrants uh, are some sort of a Christian already. Um, but many others are not. And as we advocate pe with people, as we love them as our neighbors, as we serve them, we have the opportunity to point people to the hope of a relationship with Christ. I want to close with this quote from Ronald Reagan, and then we'll go to Q&A. He said this in his farewell address in 1989, so his closing thoughts to the country. I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. In my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. Now, I find that kind of inspirational, um, roughly describes the sort of immigration policy that I would like to see. But I also would like to quibble with President Reagan for a moment. And that is that he, he elsewhere in the speech, he uses that phrase, shining city upon a hill, and he credits it to, um, to an early Puritan colonist. But of course, if you have read your Bibles, you know that that phrase does not come from any Puritan colonist. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5. And it's important to say this, it was not directed to the United States of America. <laughs> it was directed to the earliest disciples, the earliest form of the church. And Jesus says this to them. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right now, there are millions of people on the move in our world. And many of them are making their determinations about who Jesus is based on the responses of his self-professed followers. Whether that is a response of love and welcome and advocacy or of apathy or even fear and hostility. And my prayer is that our response would be that shining city on a hill that would so reflect God's love for these people made in his image for whom he died that people, both people who are already brothers and sisters in Christ and many beyond that would see our good deeds and would praise our Father in heaven and that God would be glorified. So with that, we can pivot to uh, Q&A, and you can tell us how we want to do that. Jeff? Thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can go around with the microphone and uh, make that available for people with questions. Don't be intimidated just because I'm tall. I'm nice. Uh, yes? Here. Okay, so my question is this. You talked about advocacy to the government and things like that. And part of my problem is I have no idea where to start or what to even say. Is there some kind of texting group that sends out texts like, here's something, here's something, here's something? Um, there's at least an email group, which I realize is less, you know, we're, we need to get it with the times, I guess. But um, if you... Uh, First of all, if you, if you sign that response card that we've got at the back, it looks like someone's even passing them out, which is great, you, we'll add you to that, that an, an email list where once a month you'll get an email with kind of some prayer updates around immigration issues from the evangelical immigration table. And then when there are policy issues, we'll say, hey, here's a tool. We've actually, on our evangelical immigration table, which is a coalition World Relief is a part of with a bunch of other evangelical groups, um, we've got a super easy advocacy tool. So if you go to evangelicalimmigrationtable.com slash, uh, I think it's slash advocate, you'll see it on the website, something about advocacy. You put your name, 
your address just so that we can figure out who your representative in Congress is, um, and then and your cell phone number, and then it will literally call you. You don't have to dial the phone, because we're trying to reach millennials who don't know how to use phones. Um, <laughs> I'm a millennial, so I can make jokes about that. But um, it will call you. You, say, you, know, you answer the phone, and you will hear my voice saying, thank you for contacting your senators. In this case, we're reaching out to senators, because the DREAM Act is pending before the US Senate. It's already passed the US House. And this is what basically we'd like you to say. Say that we want a permanent solution for dreamers. It doesn't need to be complicated. I know that people get intimidated by that, but I can assure you, having had lots of friends who've worked on Capitol Hill, um, you're either going to talk to a voicemail, which is not too intimidating, or a 19-year-old like, college student intern, who also is not all that intimidating. And their job is to be nice to you, because you don't get reelected by having mean people answering the phones. So they will basically say, thank you for your opinion, whether they like it or not, and they will make notes. And if one person calls, will it change the policy? Probably not. But if 100 people call in a week, I can tell you having, again, people who work in Capitol Hill have told me, members of Congress and senators pay a lot of attention when they start getting a lot of phone calls on one issue. I've seen that at work. I was in, I was in DC when the, the policy with, was called zero tolerance with children being taken away from parents at the border was just implemented. And actually, it hadn't just been implemented, but it finally just hit the news and people started paying attention. I was on Capitol Hill that day for a World Refugee Day Advocacy Day. Every meeting, every congressional office we went into, Republican and Democrat, the phone was ringing off the hook. And I only heard one side of the conversation, but it usually went something like, oh no, he's definitely against tearing children from their parents. Oh no, she's definitely against separating families. And it was one day later that President Trump, that wasn't even Congress's policy, but they had a way to get a hold of the president. And a day later, President Trump, who had said a few days earlier, this is, my hands are tied here, changed the policy. So, um, and that's a good example. Right now, the Afghanistan situation is frankly not Congress's situation. It's something the president is responsible for. But I would still reach out to your congressional representatives because some of them have his cell phone and I don't. And you probably don't either, the president said it to say. Um, and then other issues like the Dream, the Dream Act, that's really in the Senate's hands. And the president can't, <laughs> President Obama tried to do that on his own and it's been caught up in the courts. It would take Congress acting to actually resolve that. And you're, both of your senators, I think, would be great people to call on that right now. Question. Uh, another question. Uh, hi, same table. Um, I have a question about what I'm going to think of in my mind is the 88%. The 88% of evangelical Christians who admit that they are not informed currently by or the Bible. Least, or at least primarily, the way primarily the question frames. Yes. So um, I have kept them in my circle. I haven't formed a bubble around myself. I've tried not to form a bubble around myself, although this is a very nice bubble. Um, <laughs> so how, how do we who are kind of in this more informed or, dare we say, woke bubble, how do we reach out to our friends, family, who I truly believe are believers? Mm -hmm. I don't think they're, they're lost in that way they are very lost in the way that they view some of these things. So, yeah, I, I mean, I hear you completely on that question. It's, frankly, the last few years have been really painful for a lot of us who care about immigrants, more so for those who are immigrants, I think, and it's, my, it's good to be reminded of that. I mean, I see polls that 65% of white evangelicals, which is my category, right, they would like to shut down refugee resettlement altogether. Most Americans don't say that, but white evangelicals mostly do, and that's, I don't understand that. And again, World Relief, it's not like we started doing this because we wanted to jump on a political bandwagon. I mean, we've been doing this since the 70s, and it was always something the church was a part of, and always something that was very bipartisan. And then 
for whatever reason, it became more partisan and much more of a political issue just in the last few years. Um, and I should say other immigration issues have always been a little bit more political, but refugees used to have this kind of bipartisan veneer about them. Maybe we're swinging back to that with Afghanistan. It seems like there's a lot more support on both sides for that. But I, what I would say is, I don't want to claim this always works, but that, that's part of why we really, you know, we've been using this Bible study guide for like 10 years now. The beauty and simplicity of it is our friends and our family members who are believers shouldn't just dismiss the Bible out of hand. Like they might dismiss my book because of course it has my, you know, biased opinions in it. Um, but there can't really be bias in a list of Bible verses. I mean, I guess you could argue in the which Bible verses we chose, but I mean, we included Romans 13 there, even though it's not specifically about immigration, but we think it is relevant to this discussion. Um, there's just not a lot of Bible verses about how you should actually hate immigrants. Um, so the bias is actually the bias of scripture, not in the selection of verses. And we have had a lot of people go through this bookmark and say, I had no idea the Bible said anything on this topic. And again, that's the sad reality is, and I, you know, I grew up in a wonderful church. I love the church I grew up in. It taught me to love the Bible. I memorized all sorts of Bible verses as a kid, and I'm, I still have those in my head, which I'm grateful for. None of them were the verses about how to treat the foreigner. Like those just for whatever reason were not the verses we memorized. It doesn't make it into our, you know, the songs we sing very often. And yet it is actually a pretty significant theme in the Bible. And I think the more we can help people to start with that biblical perspective, which ought to be a common ground for fellow believers. And then I do find if we only do that, but we don't address some of the misconceptions, that's why you'll notice, I mean, I was working through biblical themes, but kind of looking for the opportunities to address some of the common concerns that people have. Because, you know, it maybe ought to be enough to say you should love your neighbor, even if it's risky. But it helps people to know that it's not risky. Uh, they may or may not believe that, but like, and I, I cite the Heritage Foundation on purpose. They're really conservative. They're not a liberal, lefty think tank. Um, anyone who is objective, who's looked at the refugee vetting process, says this is a very thorough system. Doesn't mean people don't think it could be improved, but the the stats actually speak for themselves. I mean, there's people can't come up with you with an American citizen who was killed by someone who came with through the refugee settlement program, because that hasn't happened. Um, they'll think of other categories of immigrants, and then you could explain to them the distinctions of, you know, well, that wasn't someone who came as a refugee. But all that to say, I think a mix of the facts and the scriptures is the best thing that I've found. And, and you know, that, the idea that all people are made in the image of God, that applies to people who we disagree with, too. Um, and to be respectful of all people. It says in First Peter to honor everyone. And, I mean, there are people who I've found to behaving less than honorably sometimes, but I think our call as Christians is to honor everyone, even those with whom we might disagree. I think somebody back here did, unless. The trailer that you started out with, is that available and would that be something to share on Facebook? Yes. Um, so it's, it's, the video is called Dion Comes Home, D-Y-A-N, and if you, it's on Venmo. I don't know if it's also on YouTube, but it's, um, you know, from there you can share it on Facebook. And it's been shared like a million times because um, it's obviously really moving. And I met the guy who made it. Again, sometimes we have like videos we make at World Relief and we spend a lot of our resources to do so. And none of them are as good as that one. So I just use that nice, you know, video made by this church in Texas all the time because it's so powerful. But yeah, D-Y-A-N comes home and it'll be 
Venmo or Vimeo and Vimeo. You yeah. said you were a millennial, and you just called Vimeo Venmo. Well, I'm not a very good. I'm an old millennial. It's a different. Most of the people here don't even know what I'm talking about. So yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah it, it's probably on YouTube. Yeah, on Vimeo. Yeah. I have, a, I have a question because uh, I bump head with people about this immigration thing all the time. And I'm personally, my conviction is that everyone should be entitled to a better life, regardless of their uh, ethnic background or color or whatever, education. But I have one thing that bothers my heart because we go downtown to the people that are under the bridge, like over here on Shetland over here. So, and it's good for the other people. But what are we doing about the people? Or where can we get started? The people in our own backyard. Yeah. That, uh, that's the thing that's... Uh, on my heart that bothers me, you know, I uh, see them standing out there. And I know a lot of them are drug, you know, uh, have drug issues and a different thing. But I'm talking about people that are really actually out there hurting. Because I took a man in my home, mm -hmm. you know, off the street, you know, uh, uh, because of some issues that he had. And uh, he stayed with my wife and I before she passed. So what are we doing for the people in our own backyard? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think... It's a challenge, obviously there's all sorts of societal challenges facing vulnerable people of different backgrounds in our society. And I am really of the conviction that the church needs to figure out how to do all of the above. It's not a matter of serve these people and therefore we can't serve these people. Um, I do think in terms of sometimes, and I don't hear you saying this at all, but sometimes the attitude is, well we shouldn't help refugees or immigrants because there are these US citizens who are in need. But that presumes that it is sort of a, a set pie of, of time and resources. But the reality is some of the tax dollars that are helping provide some governmentally funded social services for some of the homeless population are coming from people who were resettled as refugees 20 years ago, who are contributing more than, than they have received. Um, and then you can look at that, I mean, they're making donations to nonprofits and to their churches that are caring for those people as well. So I actually think the long term, having a robust economy, which I think immigration is a part of, is a part of addressing those solutions. But obviously we've had a, you know, a fairly strong economy at different points in our history and it has never eliminated hom homelessness. Um, so there are deeper issues. That is definitely not my expertise, but I think we need different parts of the body of Christ to really dive in and focus on these different needs of people who are vulnerable. Because again, um, you know, God's heart for the vulnerable is really clear in the Old Testament. And that's not just immigrants or just widows or just orphans, but the poor. And we have those folks in our society as well. Poverty looks different in every community, but um, you know, I, I'm not at all saying we should be looking over here and ignore this other need. But somehow we need different parts of the body to lead on different areas. And um, all of it is really rooted in the character of God. Matthew, I'll, I'll maybe just add to that in our local situation. Um, one, I, I really love what you said that um, as I think about it, there's, there's a thousand things that the church is called to care about, which doesn't mean every individual Christian is called to be involved in a thousand different things. It means that the church is called to care about a thousand different things because God cares about a thousand mm -hmm. different things. And, and uh, for us here locally in Indianapolis, uh, we're partners and supporters of Wheeler Mission, uh, Good News Ministries, uh, Shepherd Community Center, um, Life Centers, and uh, other Christian faith-based organizations like that, that that are helping people in our community. And so it's a, it's a both and. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I appreciate it. And I know you weren't suggesting that either. Uh, so there are ways, uh, and including trying to help our neighbors directly across the street in low-income housing, 
uh, through our Nora neighborhood ambassadors and advocating for them and helping them in a lot of different ways. That, that's a great reminder too. I mean, there's plenty of needs that aren't just about immigrants and refugees and I'm thankful that the body of Christ is big enough that uh, we have people that are involved in all kinds of ways mm -hmm. uh, to help that. But that's, that's a great reminder. So good yeah. news, uh, Shepherd, uh, um, Wheeler Mission, uh, and, uh, and some other great ministries like that are ones that we're involved with. And it looks like, Debbie, you have a, oh, I get to run back here. <laughs> wow. I just, it was kind of like Phil Donahue on the old TV show. <laughs> yes, exactly. I even remember that because I'm not a millennial. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to add to what you were saying. I, I think what's exciting sometimes is when we start responding to one area that God has called us to be part of, then he starts opening doors to others. Now, sometimes at the cost of, oh my goodness, how do I get involved? But I just think it's interesting with Nora Neighborhood Ambassadors, we went across the street, we started looking over there, then we get involved with the township because we start helping the kids with virtual school. And well, what happens there with our faith-based initiatives out of Washington Township, now we're starting to, how do we deal with some of the homeless families in our township? that are right here. So like we end up overlapping as we just step forward in faith and get involved. So I, I think that's kind of an exciting way that God works and it's not us. <laughs> the other part of that too is even at a church level, uh, we realize like we don't have a food pantry here at Faith, but First Baptist hosts a food pantry. Why? We don't need to create a food pantry. We, we, are, we love to partner with First Baptist and partner with them in their food pantry and their sending people our English language program, and we're partnering together in the community. So there's, there's lots of great networks uh, and connections there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a voice from, I won't say a voice from below, that would be. <laughs> um, can you expound on the sovereignty of God in the context of our undocumented US community? Sure. Well. That, that could probably go a few different directions. When I think about the sovereignty of God in this, and I wouldn't maybe just relate just to those who are undocumented, but to immigrants in general, I mean, I, and maybe, so, I don't know, you can jump in if I'm not getting to where you were looking for, but a passage that I've always found really meaningful in doing this work is in Acts 17, where God says that from one man, God made every nation of men, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. So we're told basically in this passage that God has a purpose in where people live and where they've ended up living. Of course, there are geopolitical dynamics for why people have crossed borders and there is you know, hunger and famine and there is poverty. And I don't believe that God you know, has caused those things so as to harm people necessarily, but he works through them and he is sovereign over them. He allows them and he works through to an end. And we see that in verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And so I really believe that it is not just an accident that I have neighbors who are undocumented immigrants from Mexico, or refugees from Somalia, or you know, immigrants from India. Like there are, you could ask them why they're here. In fact, you should ask them, not why they're here in a like, hassle sense, but ask them about their story, how, they've ended, you know, how they ended up in the United States. They'd probably be interested in sharing some of their story with you. But I, I do believe that above all that is the hand of God in the movement of people. 
towards that end that people would seek him and know him. And again, that is a two-way street. I think it's very much true that there's sort of a, an opportunity to reach the nations in our own community as a result of immigration. There also are the nations coming and reaching the United States. There are people with vibrant Christian faiths who are coming into the United States, even seeing themselves as missionaries and bringing the gospel with them to some communities that have forgotten the gospel or maybe never had it in the U.S. So um, it's a beautiful thing how God is working through the migration of people. But it is one of those dynamics that, you know, Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I think, and again, I go back to some of the polling on how most Christians think about issues of immigration. I do not think we have adequately seen this as an opportunity. I think we're more likely to have seen it not as something that God is doing sovereignly, but as a problem. And uh, as a result, I, you know, I think the potential, if we would see migration as an opportunity for mission, is much greater than what's currently being realized. Marty, you had uh, last question. Well, this has to do with refugees. Um, during a time when the refugees in the world have doubled in the last 10 years, and we were admitting 75,000 a year as normal, which isn't really very many, and now down to 10,000 a year, what, how did that happen and how can that be changed? Yeah. So um, the primary thing that happened was under the Refugee Act of 1980, the president sets the refugee ceiling. And um, President Trump ran on reducing refugee resettlement, and he fulfilled that campaign promise. Went from, President Obama had actually set it at the first, his last October 1st in office, so it was midway through the year when he was, uh, they transitioned. He set the refugee ceiling at 110,000, so going up higher than it had been in a number of years. President Trump lowered that his first week in office to 50,000, and then in consecutive years, I think 30, and then 18, and then 15. Last year, the ceiling was set at 15. President Biden said he was going to raise it. He then surprised many of us by actually reaffirming the 15,000 refugee ceiling for this year, which was really frustrating. And we were pretty loud about our frustration of that at World Relief, as we had been with President Trump. Um, and this is an example of how do you change things. That worked. President Biden changed the refugee ceiling. I mean, and not to say it was just evangelical Christians. It was Catholics and Mormons and mainland Protestants and business groups. It was actually a pretty amazing left to right spectrum of people who were unhappy with that decision. And um, he raised the refugee ceiling to 62,500. That said, we're still nowhere. We're about to end the fiscal year next month at around 10,000. I do think what the Biden administration would tell you is, well, that's because of COVID. Like, they wanted to bring people, but they had to close all these embassies, and there wasn't the staff overseas. And also because the previous administration, you know, as I said, it can take a year and a half to two years to vet someone through the refugee process. The previous administration was not sending the staff overseas to begin that process for 100,000 people six months ago or eight months ago. So it's going to take a little bit of time to build it up. But I would say you need to hold President Biden to that commitment, because thus far he has not necessarily proven that he will reliably Follow. He's made some very compelling commitments on refugees. He says next year it'll be 125,000. But um, what we've said is we need to actually, you need to do the work now in terms of vetting overseas, putting people into that pipeline so it's possible that 125,000 could actually come next year. And especially with the Afghan situation, it might justify raising it. Because you know, I would argue that there's probably about 60,000 Afghans who we have a particular obligation to, who you can't, it's important to understand, nobody is suggesting that you take them out of Kabul airport and fly them and drop them in Indiana. Um, they're being taken to Qatar, taken to the US Air Force Base in Germany, 
and being further vetted there. And only once they complete their security vetting are they being brought to the United States. But in the next several months, they, uh, a lot of these people were already in that vetting process because they had pending cases. There will be a large number of Afghans who ought to be able to come, frankly, more than, than are going to be able to get out. But I think the U.S. has a particular obligation there, and that's something to hold President Biden accountable to as well. He said we would bring those people out. It's pretty clear at this point that that's not going to happen. And I don't doubt that that's because the Taliban came in faster than anyone thought. But they need to do whatever they possibly can um, to stand with those who are our allies, especially. And there are many other Afghans who are vulnerable, who are going to be refugees, probably in Pakistan, probably in Iran or Turkey. Um, and a few years down the line, we'll probably see more of those people as well. But yeah, advocacy does make a significant difference. And uh, you know, write a letter to the editor of your local newspaper, call your member of Congress. When you see things on Facebook and Twitter that are just false, gently correct them with accurate information. And um, I think all those things help. Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, time has gone quickly. We're already past 2 o'clock. Uh, so we're going to let you head back to the table where you all can chat with Matthew. You can get some of the resources. You can purchase books. Uh, one other last thing, uh, two other, the, the usual, if you can stay and help with cleanup, that's awesome. Uh, also, we want to thank uh, Michelle Bonilla from Iglesia de Fe for uh, this beautiful artwork, these uh, watercolors that she did over here of immigrants and capturing their stories. So take an opportunity to check those out and to read the stories, uh, and it helps us put names and faces and stories together. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, God bless. Have a great rest of the day. <laughs>